1: Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho, it's the pod of thunder and rock and roll, and it's all about the rock and roll today. As we dig into 80s Kiss, my favorite Kiss era, we're going straight down the rabbit hole with the non-makeup years with my longtime friend and Talk is Jericho alumni, Eddie Trunk, Author Greg Prado, Greg uh, wrote a book about this period of history. It's called "Take It Off." Kiss truly unmasked. Available or all great books are sold. Uh, Eddie Trunk was interviewed for the book. Bruce Kulick was interviewed for the book, and I wrote the forward So that's pretty cool. Greg focused on the twelve albums released during Kiss's non-makeup years, starting with "Look It Up," all the way to uh, "Carnival of Souls." Uh, he interviewed tons of people, like I said, including Bruce Kulick, Kiss's lead guitar player during that period. Producer Ron Nevison, who did the Crazy Nights record, and video director Paul Rackman, who did the videos for Unholy, I Just Wanna, and Domino, all from Revenge. Uh, Eddie, Greg, and I talk Kiss in the 80s, the tours, the videos, the albums. We talk about the late, great Eric Carr, who was also a close friend of Eddie's. We debate the value of uh fallen guitar player, Vinny Vincent, and his time in Kiss. It's one of my favorite subjects, Kiss in the 80s. So um, new book that just came out dealing with my favorite era of KISS. Take it off. KISS truly unmasked written by uh, Greg Prado. And uh, Eddie Trunk is involved in the book. I wrote the foreword for it. And it's a really interesting book to me because it's kind of the forgotten era of KISS. Uh, Even now on the end of the road tour, they do do a couple songs from the non-makeup years. But consider that they had... You know, five or six albums from that time frame. Most of the songs are not represented. But uh, Greg, what was it that made you want to write a book about Kiss's kind of lost years, shall we say?
2: Well, it seems like that's an era, like you said, that's not really touched upon with the current Kiss live set list. And I know in the past, like, for instance, with the official Kiss book that came out a while back called Kiss Behind the Mask. It's primarily that era you hear what Gene and Paul have to say, but you don't really hear uh, Bruce speaking at length, nor uh, the people that were the producers of those albums or the songwriters. So I wanted to kind of just get some other people giving uh, their side of view of like, you know, what was going on, just to get more of a full picture. Kind of because, like I just said, we already know what Gene and Paul have to say. Now let's see what some other people have to say as well.
1: Well, I mean, let's like I said, let's let's just delve into it. Let's talk about how, where Kiss was in the '80s. And Eddie, I loved your, you know, your take on it because you were in the business at the time and you grew up in the '70s as a huge, huge Kiss fan. Talk about where Kiss was at that point in time in '81 and '82 when they started kind of thinking about doing this.
3: Well, you're right. I mean, I, I I grew up a huge Kiss fan, and but you know, a little bit of a misconception for me it, personally is the fact that. I'm a little too young to have been there with kiss from the start in the seventies. I was a little kid when I saw my first kiss show, which was 77. So one of the big misconceptions about what people think about me is I'm like an original lineup only guy. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Actually my prime years of kiss and seeing them was absolutely the eighties. And that's when I followed them the, the most closely and actually did things with the members. So for me, um, you know, getting into the band in 77 as a kid to 12 years old, and then following them in the 80s, I, you know, my point that I tried to make in Greg's book, which I also really enjoyed, was the fact that depending upon your age, it's hard for people to fathom how down and out KISS were at the start of the 80s, and why they had to take their makeup off, and how far they had fallen, and just the mere fact that Uh, I think, I don't know if I said this in the book or not, I still have a full page ad from Billboard that they were celebrating the fact that Lick It Up went gold. That was like a major moment for them where a couple of years earlier they would have shit a platinum record, you know? So it was just, it was just showed, you know, what the 80s were really about was kids trying to reinvent, rebuild, and adapt to what was going on then. And for me, what it was about as a fan, was the fact that, uh, you know, I was such a Kiss fan that it was almost like trying to survive, like, you know, rallying that, hey, uh, my guys can adapt to this era. My guys can be relevant in the 80s. Kiss can make a comeback. So it was a lot of that, really.
1: Because what you're saying, Eddie, is that at that point in time when you said you were a Kiss fan, like in 81, 82, people would almost like laugh at you like, what? You're still still with those has-beens?
3: Well that started in around 79. That wow. that started ra- around the time of Dynasty because that's when Kiss was quickly looked at as like a kitty band and if you were a serious rock fan and you liked Kiss around the time of Dynasty you were you were completely you know cast off and then that would continue through through the 80s. I always said I went to high school 79 through 82. You can't find three more Year, worse years to to identify as a KISS fan unmasked, the elder, you know but I was defiant about it and I actually love a lot of the stuff they did then and through the 80s. Something else I
2: just wanted to say too, which is pretty interesting, is in the 70s critics seemed to totally hate KISS but in the 80s and throughout that whole non-makeup era, the critics seemed to take KISS a little bit more seriously and they were getting better, I guess, feedback with uh, the songs and albums that they were scoring with, you know, their hits on radio and also MTV and stuff like
1: that at that point. Well, I think when you talk about kiss, like I said, for me and Eddie knows this story, but I talk about it in the forward that I did for the book. I remember Paul had a great quote, a classic Paul Stanley kind of Confucius quote where he said, it doesn't matter what floor of the kiss elevator that you get on or off. As long as you ride with us for a while. And I got on the kiss elevator uh, when I saw the heavens on fire video in, in 84, where, Obviously, I knew who Kiss was, but I was never really into them. I had some friends that were, and I remember seeing, you know, the posters and stuff. And obviously, you didn't grow up in the 70s and not knew who they were, but they just wasn't my thing. I was more of a Beatles guy. But when I saw Paul Stanley with his hands on fire at the beginning of the Heavens on Fire video, just seeing these guys having like this best time ever making out with chicks and they're drinking and they're they're dancing and the, the, the drummers over top of the singer singing a harmony when he's supposed to be playing drums. And then he jumps through a f- hoop at the end. I was like, this is the best band I've ever seen. Who is it? Kiss. They took their makeup off. Like I had no idea. I was totally out of it. So I came into kiss as a non makeup guy with, you know, with Bruce Kulik on guitar uh, I know it was Mark St. John, but he didn't last very long, and that's kind of why I always have such an affinity for Eighties Kiss because that's the era that I embraced and got to know first.
3: Right. Look, I mean, I, I mean, I feel th- there are, there are great records and great songs throughout that whole era. There really are, and there's great playing, there's great musicianship. But I think you know to go back to what was said at the top when we just started was like you know that Kiss largely ignores that era and those songs. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, actually. I think, you know, it's, it's a weird sort of disconnect between the makeup, to see a, a makeup-wearing band play that stuff. I think vocally it's incredibly challenging. I think there's a lot of stuff that, that's, that goes into that. But I think the biggest thing is, if you really got down to it, much of the 80s was a pretty painful time for Kiss. Even though they were they appeared to be doing well, and appeared to mount somewhat of a comeback, it never got anywhere close to what it was in the 70s, and that they were always sort of trying to figure it out, whereas the, in the 70s, they were groundbreakers. In the 80s, they were very much followers and trying to right. figure it out, which was not uncommon for a lot of 70s bass bands in the MTV era. Yeah, because I was going to say, too, it's also funny. You think about how
2: difficult it was for a lot of the 70s bands trying to make that transition into the eighties and kiss was lucky that they were actually one of those bands that did successfully make that transition as well. I mean, as far as like getting back on covers of circus magazine and also uh, getting played a little bit on the radio, but more as a quote unquote MTV band.
3: Yeah. I mean, if you, if you compare kiss, the business kiss was doing throughout that whole decade compared to the other bands of the eighties, it's no contest. And, you know, they, for the most part, they always had to have major, you know, double, triple bill opening acts, whether it was like, you know, a big emerging bands at that time, or I mean, I was out all those shows, the attendance was really spotty, it was really up and down. And it was right. really MTV that kept Kiss alive through the 80s. I mean, radio followed a little bit. But that's the reason why if you look at as Kiss fans, if we look at tears are fallen, or we look at crazy, crazy nights, or, you, you know, any of that stuff, If you look at it from a chart, if you pull the numbers on chart positions in airplay, it's really not that significant, but it was really all about MTV driving and MTV saved their ass in the 80s.
1: Well, and one of the reasons why why they were such a great MTV band was because of Paul Stanley. I mean, he was always the star child, which was the ultimate rock and roll star. So, I think he really embraced not having the makeup whereas Gene never really did because Gene was the persona of the demon. How do you be the demon without that face paint and that that, you know, that facade and that image? Whereas Paul was just continuing on taking what the star child was in the seventies and moving into the eighties. And because he had that rap and that vibe and that look, he was perfect for MTV.
3: Yeah. I mean, right. he had to, he had to do that. I mean, he's, you know, he was going to be the, I mean, obviously he is the front man and always was, but he, of that, of those guys, he was the best looking guy. He had to, he had to pull that in. when not wearing the makeup. He had to really flaunt that he had to really go for that. And Uh, And, you know, then some of the things they were trying to do musically and vocally and the choices of producers and and the direction of the music and what they were doing. I mean, it was very just it was very much of the times. But, yeah, of course, it's been well documented that the 80s were all about Paul because Gene was off doing other things and doing movies. And his level of involvement involvement was, I mean, I remember as a Kiss fan during that time being really concerned that Gene was going to leave the band. Because it was getting pretty obvious that like, you know, records were all of a sudden produced by Paul, written by Paul. You heard other people were playing bass on him. Gene's making what essentially were a lot of really bad movies for the most part. But, you know, he was just, you know, in the Hollywood land. Next thing he's managing Liza Minnelli. He's doing this, he's doing that. And and you saw Paul on this island where they were still trying to keep the thing going and reinvigorate it. And he was down to being a one-man operation at that point. And I mean, and I say that with all due respect to the other guys who were in the band at any given time, because you know, I loved those guys and I loved Eric Carr. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely The Paul Show, without a doubt.
2: Yeah, and, and I was going to say, too, you just mentioned all of Gene's bad movies. You'll be, uh, you'll be happy to know that there's a section in this book of just Gene's movies. We, it, it's, a, it's a guide about each movie and all the right. show that he acted in
3: which was great i love that greg i saw that that's the thing about (laughs) greg's book is it's so cool it's like yes you go through the different periods but then you've you've got all those little you know like the guitars of whoever and the movies like it's it's really the whole decade in in everything it's really cool
1: greg what's uh what's gene's best movie from the 80s the best
3: movie as far
2: as his acting i would say is probably wanted Dead or alive where he plays a ruthless terrorist but the Best known movie he was in was probably the movie called Runaway because that was showed the most on HBO. That's the one that has Tom Selleck in it where he's a uh, he's a killer and he has spider robot things and stuff like that. I mean, it's a very, very silly film now seeing it. But I remember it was shown quite a bit on uh, HBO back in
3: 85, 86, around then. I went out. Wait, I went out. Here's what a crazy Kiss fan I was. I went out and bought that on VHS back it but before it was a purchase VHS like if you if you guys are old enough to remember VHS like when it came out to buy the the tape was like $80 really?
1: I remember 79.99 yeah <laughs>
3: yeah until it went to like the sell through price so I actually went to the video store and ordered that just because I had to have like and own the VHS and spent like $80 for a VHS of Runaway.
1: Well, you, you have to understand, too, like in 1984, 85, 86, to star as the lead bad guy in a movie with Tom Selleck, who was huge at the time, It's felt like Gene was making B-movies. Like, like, they might not have been, you know, Terminator-level budgets, or Terminator 2 at least, but th- that was a pretty big step for him. It was a pretty big chance for him, which is why he went for it. Yeah, but
3: see, there's right. another thing. There's another thing to all this. And again, from Greg, I don't know. I know Jericho is a little younger than me, but Greg, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking?
2: Uh, I was born seventy-two, so I am forty. So you're
3: you're eight years 42. you're eight years younger than me. So both of you guys are yes. a, a bit younger than me. So, and that's real. The reason why I ask that is that it's a really important part when you look at this stuff, because at at fifty-five, my perspective why i was so crazy with doing all this stuff with 80s kiss was you got to understand the the view it was all of these things were validation as a kiss fan that kiss still could be relevant and cool if you can understand what i'm saying like kiss we had been beaten down so hard for being Kiss fans and told Kiss was so uncool and so out and nobody wanted anything to do with Kiss and nobody cared about Kiss. So to see one of the guys in Kiss in a studio movie, it was like, whether it was good or not, was irrelevant. It was like, wait, look, these guys can work in the 80s. They can do things. You know, people do care about them. Lick It Up went gold. Oh my God, there's a video on MTV. This can work there is a future for Kiss like all of these things were just some sort of reinforcement as Kiss fans at that time if you were one to say these guys could have a future there there could be a future for this band still.
1: No and that's my point too is that we were talking earlier about when you compare them to other bands that kind of made that jump from the 70s to the 80s. Um, I mean, that's why they really fit. And yeah, Kiss went down from the 70s, but to still do gold records and some of them were platinum, they still did arena tours. Listen, they weren't sold out, but I saw Crocus on an arena tour headlining once that probably had 2000 people. So there was a lot of bands that were doing arena tours that might not have been selling out, but also on top of it, Kiss was perfect for the pomp and circumstance of the 80s. When you talk about the Kiss Exposed video, you know, running around at a mansion with a pool with a bunch of half-naked Playboy chicks, you couldn't have done that with Rush or you couldn't have done that with ZZ Top. You know what I mean? Like, Kiss was perfect for what the 80s was for the debauchery and the decadence of that time.
3: Yeah, even though I'll say, yeah. I think a lot of that stuff is pretty cringe now. I mean, that was, I think, to me, some of that stuff was them trying to push it too much and try to like you know as much as as much as they were doing that and at the time might have been cool as a kid or whatever. And sure, ZZ Top and Rush couldn't have done it, but Bon Jovi and Def Leppard could have done it, and for the most part, they didn't. And I think that that was that was viewed out as the time of Kiss just looking so desperate to be relevant and of the time. And if you look back on a lot of it now, and I know, Greg, in the book, you go through all the home videos, which I thought thought was awesome. You know, whether it's decline of the West of the metal years or exposed or any of that stuff, it's kind of, you know, And I'm sure they'd be the first to say it's kind of cringe. You know, I just heard a podcast with Paul Stanley and he wouldn't even curse during the interview. He's like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm a gentleman. And then you look back, um, (laughs) yeah. And then you look, then you look back in what he was doing in the '80s. And every if you hear the stage raps, it was completely over the top and out of character. So I just think all of the whole era was about them trying so hard to connect, and I think sometimes they did take it too far.
1: See, but for me, I thought that it worked because once again, my kiss was '80s kiss, and that's kind of what was in vogue. And I remember, obviously, if you look at the at the Kiss Animalized tour that's up on YouTube now from from '80 80, early '85 when they did the the uncensored thing, it's still one of my favorite gigs of all time. I mean, they're playing everything super fast, super rushed. Yeah. Paul's raps are about going to the doctor and the nurse has got the biggest tits. And then they're making jokes about, you know, paternity suits that, you know, Gene has an illegitimate child. And that's funny. Like they were doing all of the stuff that was so over the top. But I can remember that same tour where Paul held up a Michael Jackson doll and said, look, it's, it's got no dick. It's anatomically correct. And you would <laughs> cheer. <sighs> like they were so oh, yeah. over the top.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so much right. stuff from there that I'm sure he absolutely cringes at now. But it was it was the times.
1: Greg, what is your affinity to '80s Kiss? Were you a '70s guy? That got you're pretty much closer to age to me than Eddie is. I'm, I was born in '70, so did you join up with Kiss as an '80s fan as well?
2: No, I began as a Kiss fan when I was seven years old. My friend at my bus stop showed me his Kiss trading cards, and then my mom was kind enough to buy me. The first Kiss album as a kindergarten graduation gift. And then my father kind enough to take me to see Kiss on the Dynasty Tour with Judas Priest opening at Nassau Coliseum. So that's when my Kiss fandom started. And I kind of uh, lost faith uh, around 1981-82, but I came back just in time for Lick It Up. And from about, I'd say, 84 through 1990, Kiss was my uh, favorite band. So I saw them on the Crazy Nights Tour. I saw them on the Hot in the Tour. I saw Ace open up for Iron Maiden on the 7th Sun Tour. So I saw several uh, KISS shows around then. And I also went to one of the the first KISS conventions that was in uh, Jersey in 88.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal it probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: Let me get your take on this, both you guys. There's kind of a... It's something a lot, a lot of guys in the KISS podcast will say, is did Vinny Vincent save KISS? Meaning did his songwriting at that time when they needed some really great songs, not just on Creatures of the Night, but eight out of the 10 songs on Lick It Up or Vinnie Vincent co-writes, which could mean they were all his songs that Paul and Gene just added some lyrics to. Who knows? It was his songs that really made a stand on that, uh, to to turn Lick It Up into a gold record. Let's talk about kind of the influence of Vinnie at that point in time.
2: Yeah, I think that he was a huge, huge part in turning Kiss around. You can go back to also the, uh, Creatures of the Night album, which is in my top five Kiss albums of all time. He was, I think, a huge part in elevating the quality of that material and also helping Kiss focus again. But of course, in that Creatures album, I think the most valuable player on that album is definitely the late, great Eric Carr with his huge, massive sounding drums, which I think that's why Lick It Up is not quite as stellar as Creatures, that sonically, Lick It Up is not as good as Creatures. But um, Lick It Up definitely does have some great songs on it. So I think that's sort of equal, but I would have to go with creatures. But to get back to your question, I think Vinny was a huge, huge part in uh getting kissed back on track around that time.
1: What do you think, Ed?
3: Greg, I was surprised that I found it funny actually and I couldn't figure out why you included creatures in this whole book because I'm like, well that's not a non makeup record. And then I remembered the reissue with the other cover. So you kind of pulled a little asterisk there, which I thought was <laughs> funny. Uh, Cause I worked in a record store and I remember like it's it, creatures has the distinction of being a record that has um, two different covers. Neither of them features the guitar player that actually played on the record one with right. Bruce and one with ACE. But you know, here's the thing with Vinny, you can't underestimate the greatness of creatures. And then obviously some of the stuff on Lick it up. It is interesting that sonically Lick it up. Didn't sound the same way, even though I do like the way the record sounds. But it's the same production team. But obviously they decided, well, different guy mixed it. But they. I guess they just decided they didn't want to repeat the same exact sound. But, you know, it's easy to say, and I'm not trying to undervalue what Vinny did as a writer and contributor because it is great stuff. But, it's, but here's the question that we just don't know. So if it wasn't Vinny and they collaborated with someone else at the time, could they have still come up with equally great material? I mean, we don't know. All we know is what we've heard. But the question that I have is like, okay, so if they didn't find Vinnie Vincent and they didn't write these songs with Vinnie Vincent, is there anybody else that they would have you know, collaborated with? Would it have been Desmond Child, who I just talked to recently, or any of these other people? There, there, there may have been other songwriters that they could have gone to that could have created equally great material with them. So it's just a question we don't know, which plays into the Vinny saved kiss narrative. We we don't really know that because we don't know how it would have gone if it wasn't him. And one of the other noted songwriters of the time.
2: And also something else that was interesting that I found out uh, by doing uh, research for this book, lick it up is the only kiss album that had no outside songwriters on it. Yeah,
3: oh, wow.
1: exactly. Yeah.
3: You know, and I, I just did an interview on, on my radio show with Desmond child. And I thought this was interesting too, because Desmond obviously the one of his first ever outside writing things was I was made for loving you, a you know, huge hit, but then they didn't go back to working with Desmond again until Animalize. So it's interesting like if you had all that success and this huge hit with this guy even though the song was really polarizing, you know, imagine Desmond Child being involved in writing on something like Unmasked which was a pop record which is really Desmond's strong suit. Or if he would have got involved on any of the other records, you would have wondered what that would have sounded like and could, you know, could could things have been revived earlier? I don't know. The other thing about Vinny that I'll say real quick is I think Vinny's greatest contribution with Kiss was as a writer, because as a player, there's a lot of controversy, whether he was the right guy and the right fit for that band. And, you know, visually he was you know, never, you know, not some great looking star guy on stage. So, uh, you know, Vinny's, you know, role in Kiss starting out as this guy behind the scenes under his real name on Creatures and then emerging into Lick It Up. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating, you know, story. It really is the whole evolution of Vinny and where he, he slotted in. I'm not saying he's not a great guitar player, but I saw Vinny Vincent many times in Kiss live and it was, it was a nightmare. I mean, they used to literally yell
1: at him on stage. Well, like, what, what? Tell us about that, because Vinnie was in the band for such a short time from a live standpoint. What did you see, Eddie? Well, he was he was not overly. Uh, well, I didn't
3: see him with makeup. I didn't see the Creatures tour. Okay. Because the creatures the Creatures tour didn't play in New York. Because honestly, they were. I mean, the Creatures <laughs> tour was a disaster attendance wise. They were pulling like fifteen hundred people in twenty thousand seat arenas, and they, they didn't even get booked in New York. The closest they came was Massachusetts. And I had a ticket and was driving there with my friends, and then I had an appendix attack and landed in the hospital. So I never made that show. So the, but I did see a lot of shows on the Lick It Up tour. And you know, Vinny was just, you know, stage presence wise, he just kind of like sleeked around the stage a little bit. And uh, but he was a guy that wanted to showcase shred. And he wanted to, you know, showcase that he was this shredder and you can't shred over firehouse you know? and right, that's what right, he was right, doing right, yeah. and, and 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 that was created a lot of division with fans at the time because the old school kids fans who are still on board at the time of lick it up and there was a small percentage of us we, we would go to those shows and we wanted the guy to be great and although it was like we were in awe of the speed thing which was what everyone was going for then it was like wait a minute what did this guy just do to cold gin? That's not even close to what that's supposed to be. So it was really, it was a really polarizing thing among fans.
1: You know, that's one thing when you talk about um, uh, Bruce Kulick, kind of the forgotten man from from KISS's lineup. And to me, I know you're not going to like this, Eddie, but he's still my favorite KISS guitar player as far as from a technical standpoint and from respecting all of the guys' leads, whether it was a Vinny lead or an Ace lead, but he still added his own own style to it. I think, I was just reading that Bruce actually played with them on the KISS cruise for, uh, I guess it looks like they played seven or eight songs with them. You know, it's cool to see Bruce kind of getting a little bit of of respect and a little bit of love in this book from you, Greg, because I think he is kind of the forgotten man in the Kiss lineup.
2: Yes, he uh, was. I I think Bruce was a huge part of that uh, 80s Kiss sound as well because he was also called upon to do a lot of uh, co-writing. Like, for instance, his first album with Kiss that he was properly credited was the uh, Kiss Asylum record, and he co-wrote. I think he he had a hand in writing – more songs in that album than either Gene or Paul, because then he collaborated on songs with both Gene and Paul. So he may have co-written or had a hand in writing more songs on that record than actually either Gene or Paul. And he also continued throughout the 80s with was also co-writing songs. And he, I think his uh, guitar playing, at the time in the 80s, shredding was very it was very popular. And he was one of the few uh, metal guitarists of the 80s. I think that while he could shred on, for instance, a song such as... Uh, the song called No, No, No. He also knew when to maybe take it back or maybe maybe pull it back a little bit, like as the solo on the song called Tears Are Falling, where it's very kind of tasteful. And it's actually, I think, one of the most memorable Kiss solos of the whole entire 80s.
1: Well, uh, well, yeah, he was great with those type of solos. Even talking about Forever is a great solo, Reason to Live is a great solo. It wasn't just shredding for the sake of shredding, which he could do when the time came. But Kiss, like Eddie said, is not a shred band. Kiss is much more of a, I don't know, Led Zeppelin hard rock stomping. I'm not going to say a blues band, but because they're, they're not. But I would see much more of a, a Jimmy Page being in Kiss, just like Ace is a Jimmy Page guy more than he's a you know a freaking Malmsteen type of guy. Do you agree with that, Eddie? Yeah.
3: Well, yeah. But here, here's the thing, right? So this is what I find amazingly endlessly fascinating when we talk about this stuff, is that Kiss bounced Vinny because of whatever issues they were having with them. And also from a playing standpoint, like he would do these extended solos and Paul would like literally yell at him to stop. I saw it at Radio City Music Hall. i was sitting right there. He literally said stop. Yeah. What? Well, ha- Paul would do this call and response thing where he would like say to the, you know, whatever vocal acrobatic he would do to the, to the audience. And then, then it, there'd be a drum hit and then Vinny would like respond With some sort of crazy guitar run. It was just the two of them doing this like call and response thing. But Vinny would take the guitar run two or three times longer than it was supposed to be. Like he wouldn't stop. And Paul would just, you'd see Paul would just step away from the mic, put his hands on his hips and look at the guy and shake his head. And there was one time he went right over him and he just got right in his face and put in front of the crowd, put his finger in his face and goes, You and stop when I tell you to stop. Oh, wow. <laughs> because Paul would give him a, a hand sign to stop so that he could go back to the vocal thing, and Vinny just would shred right through it because it was all about trying to make that impact. But here's what's crazy, right? So they get rid of Vinny because musically it's just not working, what he wants to do, and what have you. But then they replace him with Mark St. John, who is also this technical shred fest guy. So that's what I'm talking about. Like KISS were followers in the 80s. I don't mean that as a diss. It's just a fact. If it was Def Leppard with Pour Some Sugar on Me, they're going to go do Read My Body on Hot in the Shade. If it's, you know, Ron Nevison having huge success with Shot in the Dark with Ozzy, they're going to go wait and get Ron Nevison to do their record. It was very much like that. And they they were kind of conflicted because they knew that style of guitar playing Definitely didn't fit their 70s music, but they also wanted that car hero personality. And I think, Chris, I think Bruce, you know, outside of Ace, of course, who is, you know, with the 70s stuff, the definitive guy. But I thought Bruce was of the replacement guys by far the best guy
1: oh, because agreed. I agree.
3: he came in and he honored the old material. He brought a little bit of that shred where needed. And he also, like Greg said, played really tastefully when needed. So when he, I remember him coming in because on that Animalized tour, we were told that Mark St. John was going to come back and play, and he was actually waiting in the wings of the stage at some shows while Bruce was playing. And that that's a really weird whole deal uh, as well. But we were all excited to see Mark. But once Bruce got out there, and we heard, especially how he was playing the old material, we're like well, this wouldn't be so bad if it stayed like this.
1: No, absolutely. And he, he just he looked better and he fit better. And like you said, he, he would always respect the solos he was playing but also had no problems changing him up a little bit uh, when the time was right. I thought that was pretty cool. There's nothing wrong with that to me. You don't, you know, Tommy Thayer, obviously another great player, but he plays those solos note for note uh, as the spaceman. Bruce never did that, nor maybe was expected to do that. So uh, I just thought it was a, a better mix for that band for sure.
3: I just think there was a pressure. Like I said, there was a, there, it was a conflicted time because Hey, we want a guy that we can show that can hang with the ingvays or the Eddie Van Halens or the George Lynch's or whatever is going on at that time. But we also know that that style doesn't fit playing Strutter or Deuce. So that was the conflict. It was like they still had to honor the old material, but any guitar player that got in there just wanted to make the cover of Guitar Player and show that they were of the caliber of what all these other flashy players were. And it just, it, it, it took a guy that could kind of walk that line. And I think Bruce did it. And then
2: also something, and then, and also something else that was cool about Bruce was on stage. He wasn't like Yannick Yars where he's dancing and prancing and he's totally taking away. From what's going on like he pretty much knew his place to just do a solo step back and let Paul you know do do his whole thing so I think that should also be commended that Bruce well well to the,
3: to, yeah but Greg to that end the the other the, the if you know if you know the early days of Bruce Kulik and Kiss it took him a long time to fall into like how to perform live they used to joke with him and say that he looked like a tree because right. he didn't he didn't move he just stood there and he was locked up and he was very stiff and he didn't know so so it took it took a couple records and tours for him to kind of i think find his skin as far as a performer
2: yes they actually i'm I, I, I'm pretty sure that they used to call him spruce kulit right
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what i was going to say and you got to keep in mind too that that kiss animalized tour that's uh, you know one like i said the best gig ever for me uh from the uncensored that was bruce's spruce's first Gig as an official member of KISS. So if he's a little bit nervous and uh, tree like, maybe that's the reason why.
0: Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com. T R U G R E E N dot com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people, guaranteed.
1: Let's talk about someone who, at that point in time, was not nervous. Your old friend Eddie, uh, the, the late great Eric Carr. I want to talk because he's been gone so long, and he passed away at the dawn of the '90s. Once again, I think people forget that his contributions to the band were so important to that in that time frame.
3: Yeah, I mean, enormous. I've said this many times, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to anybody else who's been in KISS, but I think without question, uh, to most fans, Eric Carr is the most loved, non-original member of KISS. And again, I don't mean that in any disrespect to Bruce or any of these guys, but Eric just had a way about him. There was an innocence about him. There was a connection to the fans that was really very unique he was approachable he was friendly he was grounded he was just so uh, grateful for the opportunity and he you know i i got i became friendly with eric carr and th- this is going to sound really crazy but it's true he was never like i don't know if he wasn't allowed to or he just wasn't approached but when he was in the band, obviously all anyone wanted to talk to when Kiss was doing stuff was Gene or Paul. And I was like one of the early people to reach out to him and, and said, Hey, will you come on my radio show? And he's like, really, you want to talk to me? And that's kind of how our friendship was formed because we exchanged numbers, we stayed in touch and then we built the friendship out of that. But He was like so floored that anyone would request an interview with anybody but Gene or Paul at that time, and I don't know if those guys liked the fact that he would always come on with me because I mean it was way before the age of blabbermouth and the internet where everything became a story. But you know he would he would come on and say stuff that was like really great stuff, like really different perspectives and. Then after we do the radio show, he'd hang out on the front lawn and take pictures with people or have a beer with people. Like he was just that kind of guy. The first time I met him was on the Lick It Up tour in in Massachusetts. And I was staying. I, I had no idea we were in the same hotel as Kiss. It was next to the venue. And me and my buddies, there's a picture of it, by the way. Me and my buddies had the door to the hotel room open. We we're in there drinking like Michelob's you know, getting ready for the show. <laughs> we're playing Kiss on our boom box. It was like the hope the pregame was on. And who walks in but Eric Carr? And he's like, I was walking by. I heard Kiss music. You guys going to the show. We were like flabbergasted. The drummer, two hours before they played, is sitting in the room with us with a bunch of kids. And he's like, hey, you got, a, you got an extra beer? The guy had a beer with us. There's a photo of it. So that was Eric Carr. He was like, and at that point, I wasn't in the industry or anything. We, we actually connected on that level much later. But it's it just, you know, that, that's the best way I could sum up Eric. And, and from a musical standpoint, huge contributions. I mean, you know, he has co-writes on a lot of great songs. And, it, it, you know, his drumming was just next level. And also,
2: I was going to say, I'm a, a huge fan of Eric as well. I wrote about 10 years ago. And actually, one of the first times I ever spoke to you, Eddie, was for one of my earlier books called The Eric Carr Story.
3: Yeah, and it was a great book and I I just I don't think people can, you know, Chris, you talked about how long Eric has been gone. That's that that floors me because it doesn't feel like that and I've said so often when I was doing that metal show, one of my great regrets, I mean, I I miss Eric on so many levels, but I always thought of Eric when we were taping all those episodes because he was also a supreme ballbuster and he would have <laughs> he would have loved something like that metal show. I mean, the guy would have been like uh That guy on Letterman that came up out of the seats in the audience or something—the man under the (laughs) seats—that's the kind of Eric would have taken that role. He was just so so, you know, so so easy to deal with and such such a great dude. And you know, had a had a bit of a combative time at times in Kiss. You know, the whole Hot in the Shade tour, him and Paul didn't even talk, and he was yeah, he and he was a little—I don't know—he was, I guess, at times he could be a little bit. Maybe paranoid would be the word about his gig or his standing in the band, but he he just, uh just a wonderful guy, man. I think about him still every day.
1: You know, I, I know that there was some, some problems there because when Paul went on his, on his solo tour in 89, Eric wanted that gig. And Paul was like, I don't want anybody in Kiss to do it. And that's why he brought in Eric Singer. And both Eric Singer and Paul told me that, that car would watch the show and go, yeah, that's the guy that's going to replace me. And Paul's like, what are you talking about? This is your gig. He's like, nope, he's going to replace me. And by circumstances, you know, out of everyone's control, that's exactly what happened.
3: Well, he, you're 100% right. Eric would personally call me and talk to me about that. And he was very uh, stung by that. He was stung by the fact that uh, he, you know, when he got thought he was getting better, he thought the door was closed to him for Kiss. I will never forget just just before he died uh, him calling me and asking me because i was in the industry at that point i was working for a record label and had contacts with management and labels and bands and he called me up and he said hey man keep i'll never forget he said keep your ears open for me for a gig and i said what are you talking about and he goes this guy eric singer's taking my gig he goes i know he is he said it's just a, it's a done deal he goes there's no way i'm going back to kiss they're not going to have me back and i was like eric would you stop I was like, get yourself healthy the gig is yours the fans would revolt it's your gig man just get healthy worry about that and uh he was like no man i'm telling you and i'll never forget he goes to me i heard white snake might be looking for someone can you make a call for me and i was like i'm not calling anyone for you because your gig is in kiss and you're going to get better and you're going to take your gig back and then you know he died but obviously but you know that ties into the God gave rock and roll to you video, because I think most fans know that's Eric singer on the song, but the video Eric Carr plays in, and it was his last appearance with the band. And he was adamant about being in that video because he saw that as his chance to still put, you know, he wasn't well enough to cut the track at the time, but, it, but being in that video was a statement to him that he was not giving up his turf, that he wanted people. Right. People knew because when that was done, people knew what he that he was sick and what he was dealing with. But he wanted people to know that, uh, you know, hey, I'm I'm still in Kiss. This is still my drum soul.
1: He actually sang the 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 breakdown of that song too. The God gave rock and roll to you, so he was on the track vocally, uh, just not
3: great but, singer. Yeah, great singer. Great great singer. Was the lead singer in his previous band. And the last thing I'll say, because I know I'm talking way too much, which is always my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Is that is that uh, he was ecstatic over Little Caesar, like the the fact that he got the all he wanted was a song with lead to sing lead vocals on a KISS record. And I will never forget how happy he was when he called me and told me he was getting one.
1: It's cool that has that moment, because like you said, once again, I'll, I'll talk about it every day, because I watch it on a monthly basis, KISS Uncensored, the Analyze Tour. They have him singing Black Diamond. They have him singing Young and Wasted. Like, he gets his, his lead breaks. Uh, and it's amazing because every KISS drummer, well, all three of them, Peter, Eric Carr, and Eric Singer, all have similar voices. And have that raspy type of voice to where they can sing Black Diamond and it sounds great. Um, And let's talk a little bit about Eric Singer because I remember when he got the gig in KISS, there was a little bit of controversy amongst longtime KISS fans because he was the first blonde-haired KISS member.
2: (laughs) Yes, he was. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, honestly, I know that people point to the uh, Revenge album as a, uh, like, big Kiss album. But, you know, what's funny is for me at that point, personally, um, I was kind of phasing out of Kiss a little bit because at that point, you know, Soundgarden was coming on and also Nirvana and also bands like Ministry and Smashing Pumpkins. And I was kind of veering more towards that at that point. And kind of similar to what also Eddie was saying before, throughout the 80s, this was more or less following what was going on. And even with that, it like even with uh Revenge there's no denying that it was a return to form for them. For me as a fan of Kiss for song, it didn't seem like it was very sincere. So I, I it was a little bit of a turnoff for me at that point. That it seemed like, well, am I supposed to now forget everything that happened throughout the eighties and like all the pop type stuff and now suddenly I'm supposed to be led to just forget about all that. And now Kiss is heavy once again. Yeah, it was kind of like hard for me, but 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 then again, that said, I was happy to see that that album was the first top ten Kiss album since I think Dynasty. So I was happy on one hand to see that it, that they were it's supposedly popular again from a like chart uh, perspective. But as far as as far as listening to Kiss at that point, I was kind of looking towards. You know, maybe like fans that were a little bit more hungry or a little bit more maybe like younger at that
1: point. Well, I think that Kiss, they always kind of followed, not followed trends. They incorporated what was going on in the trends. And you can see that from I Was Made For Loving You, the disco song, Hard Luck Woman, the, the 70s Maggie Mae type thing that was popular. Unmask the pop the pop music that you know lover boy was doing and then the bon jovi stuff and then you had kind of the heavier pantera stuff on revenge and then of course you had just the out and out grunge on uh on carnival of Souls. so it's something that they've done at that point in time quite often uh to kind of maybe stay relevant and stay current yeah, yeah no yeah, i think I mean, that's, that's, yeah you know, go ahead greg oh yeah no, i was gonna say um what's pretty
2: funny is i interviewed uh the producer, Toby, Wright for the book, who is the producer of the Carnival of Souls album. And uh, he said at one point uh, he was talking to Gene during the recording of that album. And I think Smashing Pumpkins came up in the conversation or something like that. And uh, Toby was trying to explain to Gene, like, you know, why would you want to, like, why would you consider trying to write a song like Smashing Pumpkins? Like, you're Gene Simmons. You're, you know, people associate so much with Kiss. Like, why would you want to change your sound or whatever? And Gene's response was because Billy Corgan right now is selling a lot of records. So it's pretty much that I think sums it up right there. Throughout Kiss's career, it was whatever was popular. I think that's what they were kind of interested in kind of focusing it on and try to, but you know, you could look at it that way, but then in the seventies for their first five or six albums, they were pretty much true to what they were, which are just like a straight ahead kick-ass rock band. So why, they felt it necessary to do that just, you know, for the quick kind of hit. I, I don't
3: know why. Well, I can tell you why. I, and I, I know it for a fact. It, it's about relevance. That's the word you're looking for, trying to be relevant, because that's what they want. It wasn't even about popular. It was about relevant. You got to remember, in the 80s, Kiss was already considered an old band. Their their days were over, like their mark had yeah. been made. That they, they were. This was a second lap of them trying to figure out who they are and what they are they had already had a huge influence on people and made a huge gargantuan impact on the 70s so the 80s was about them trying to show hey look you know all these other bands that we influence that care about us that like us and i don't care who the band is all bands love when younger hipper bands acknowledge them And the band of the moment gives them props or does some affiliation with them to make to show that they liked them or respect them. And I'll give you one example of that. And Kiss is super. Kiss loves whether it's artists from other genre or younger artists or whatever to 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 kneel to the throne, so to speak. I did an an hour interview in L.A. with Gene and Paul for the first Kissology and we did it at Henson Studios in LA, and we were all set and ready to roll with this. And they called, and they insisted on there being a second interviewer beyond me doing the interview, because they wanted, and they the persons, people that they wanted at that time were people like Chester Bennington, Scott Weiland, the real like because they like the look. Of a current hip band at that time that was all over radio, loving Kiss so much that they would sit there and interview them with me, and they refused to do it until we found like someone from their laundry list of hot people at that time that would make them look cooler by sitting there. And um, the 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 deal was it was good, It was supposed to be Scott Weiland, and surprise, surprise, Scott didn't show up. So the interview ended up being just me. But that's the when we got there, the guy didn't show, which I, you know, sucks about Scott, of course, and obviously his legacy is 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 awesome. But I always also thought it was funny because Gene was always so outspoken about people with right. drugs and alcohol, but they weren't going to do an interview unless Scott Weiland was there, who of course pulled in a, a, a no show. But back to the Eric Singer thing, and I think I say this in Greg's book, I like revenge, but in my view. Revenge is massively overrated. I I know there's a lot of people who think it's a top three KISS record. That's fine. But to me, I think it's super overrated. I think there's some pretty weak moments on that record that nobody talks about. I think what happened with Revenge was that got everybody so excited was it was the return of Of Jesus It was the first record in I don't know how long where Gene's a Gene song was. The, Ten
1: the years since I, lo- I love it loud to unholy. Ten years.
3: Yeah. So I think that the return of Ezrin, the return of Gene leading something, the fact that it was heavy, all great. The I'm look, not saying any of that wasn't the great way they book, looked, but I don't I don't think and, and I know I know I do say in Greg's book. I think for me, the pinnacle of of non-makeup kiss is hot in the shade. As, as far as a tour, live, not record, tour. But I just, right. thought, um, I just thought Revenge was a little, you know, I just, yeah, and the other thing about Eric Singer, the one thing about Eric Singer coming into the band was it was weird too because he had kind of like, he was the first guy, Kiss guy that came in that actually had a lot of history at that point, True. that people had hmm. seen and, you know, he was in Black Sabbath, he was in this. So he was the guy that came in, although a great drummer with the least amount of mystique. And it just, I remember as a fan felt differently because when Eric was there, you knew he had done some stuff. It was like, okay, let's try to figure out, you know, where this guy came from. Same with Mark, same with Vinny, same with Bruce to some degree. But then here comes a guy who basically had been around and played with Gary Moore or Black Sabbath and on and off with Kiss stuff. And it's like, oh, they're getting, you know, they're just getting a great drummer, but there's literally no mystique here.
1: I remember when I bought the, the Revenge, because I am one of those guys, Eddie, that says like Revenge is my favorite. It's probably my favorite Kiss Studio album overall for me. Uh, and when I bought the album in May of 92, it came with a poster of the band, of the way they looked. And it, it, Paul had a trench coat, and Gene had the the studded vest, and he had the goatee, and he had the, the hair tied back, which I mimicked for years in, 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 in wrestling, um, kind of the back ponytail. And I was like, wow, this looks cool. And Eric Singer's hair was down to his waist. And I put that poster up. And here I am, a 21-year-old kid putting a poster of Kiss up in my room. It's like that showed that once again. The appeal of Kiss and putting posters up was still there because they look cool. And to me, like once again, I was an '80s Kiss fanatic, and you go through the looks, and my gosh, Paul's body glove and, and jeans, wigs over the years, and it just it, that doesn't th- doesn't hold up. Watch the uh, "Who Wants to Be Lonely" video or uh, "All Night." The costumes are terrible slash amazing, but Revenge was like that was the first time that I ever saw gene simmons as the demon without makeup he finally figured it out how to play that character on stage uh, without the makeup and the boots and the fire and everything
2: well see that's the thing too that i always wonder like what would have happened or how different those 80s kiss albums would have been like if gene came to that conclusion earlier on because it seemed like on the lick it up album he was still singing from yes. that demon persona with some songs so i think that, for me, is my personal favorite non-makeup kiss album because I could definitely picture Gene dressed in his Creatures of the Night costume and makeup singing a song like Not for the Innocent, whereas later on I can't picture him singing like secretly cruel dress in his uh, Creatures of the Night garb. <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> Do you want a beautiful lawn?
1: Let's. Uh, let, let, we're winding down here because uh, I know Eddie has to do his show, but let's just briefly go through the albums and tell me your favorite song and what you thought. Uh, we'll lick it up. You, you just mentioned it, Greg, about Gene still having some presence on that record. Uh, a quick statement on the record and your favorite song off of it.
2: I would go with uh, my favorite uh, is definitely not for the innocent with also the title track, Look It Up, being a close second. And I also love All Hell's Breaking Loose because the best of my knowledge is one of
3: the first rap
2: rock songs, and Kiss
3: never gets the credit for that. Point. Eddie? A million to one, probably, from Lick It Up. Uh, I was always a Paul guy as far as my favorite songs and uh, singing, and his voice is off the charts on that. I think it's, it was, of course, co-written by Vinnie Vincent and later came out on a Vinnie Vincent record under the name That Time of Year. Um, oh, wow. Record, <laughs> which is ba- basically the same guitar part, the same song, and I asked Vinny about that and he said, yeah, pretty much. But um, yeah, so uh, a million to one. But th- there's a lot of stuff on there. I mean, I love Exciter. I love All Hell's Breaking Loose. I think Not for the Innocent is, is great. Um, Young and Wasted. Fits, I mean, Fits Like a Glove was in the set forever but uh, uh, my favorite song uh, probably on that record would be uh, a million to
1: one. I'm going to go a million to one as well. And fits like a glove a couple quick things. When I first saw the cover of Lick It Up, I thought that Ace Frehley was still in the band. And I thought that Vinnie Vincent was Ace Frehley without makeup. And if you look at the cover, (laughs) they've really done his hair kind of ace like (laughs) also too. I love the fact that Exciter kicked off the record with their hot new shred guitar player. And that solo is done by Rick Derringer. (laughs) (laughs) let's go to animalize um the gene songs on this are terrible for me uh but i think heavens on fire is the best written kiss song of the 80s and one of the best choruses in rock and roll from that time frame i think it's a flawless tune and maybe their best tune uh as far as a radio hit ever eddie
3: well, I'll tell you something real quick on that, Chris, with Heaven's on Fire, because, again, I literally just had Desmond Child on my show, who, uh, who, oh, who returned great. to Animalize as a writer and co-wrote Heaven on Fire. And Desmond told me that that riff for Heaven's on Fire, he's repurposed in like three different songs that he's written for other artists, and it works every time.
1: I think he told me that, including
3: yeah. Including I Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett, which is yes. an offshoot of that riff. Yeah. (laughs) So, so that's the riff has been repurposed like four times since that song, but I I love, um, I love thrills in the night and I love, I've had enough. I love the opening track. I remember hearing that first song and getting that record and just my jaw being on the floor, the double kick, the, the shred guitar. I I remember like at my friend's house in Staten Island and we put that, that on and we were like, wow they, they can compete with van halen now like you know
1: <laughs> yeah totally it was right. so
3: much see again i i don't mean to be redundant but it was a lot about that back then like if you were a kiss fan of my age it was about the 80s proving that that that, that Kiss could hang with the other guys and that you know whether it was docking or friggin' you know van halen it's like wow this is amazing so i i love i love the opening track on that record
1: what do you think greg
3: you know, a underrated track on that on that album, I think, is
2: Murder in High Heels. That's co-written with Mitch Weitzman, who co-wrote several other tracks on that album. And the reason why I like it so much is the riff, I think, is great. I think it has a great riff that people don't really ever uh, think about or talk about. And also, um, Bruce plays a, a solo on that as well. So that's one of my favorite tracks, as well as Heaven's on Fire. And of course, the song called Under the Gun, which is a Eric Carr co-write. I think that's a great track
3: as well.
1: Great live tune as well. Uh, Eddie, what about uh, uh, Asylum?
3: This is going to sound really crazy, but I recently listened to Asylum top to bottom for the first time in a really long time. And I walked away thinking that it may be the best top to bottom non-makeup kiss record.
1: It doesn't sound crazy. I agree with you. Those songs, especially the Gene songs, hold up so much better than a lot of the other ones do. I agree with you with that.
3: It's really, there is a ton of strong stuff on there. It sounds great. Um, You know, like you talk about Gene, like Trial by Fire, Super Hooky, Secretly Cruel, Super Hookie. Tears Are Fallen, just a phenomenal song. For me, it's, again, I'm a Paul guy, so it's Tears Are Fallen and or Who Wants to Be Lonely, like neck and neck.
1: I know you got to go so Greg and I can finish up, but just give us a quick about uh, Crazy Nights and Hot in the Shade and Revenge.
3: I'll Fight Hell to Hold
1: You. Great tune, yeah.
3: I love love that track, everything about it. Uh, I know everybody hates My Way on that record, (laughs) but I kind of like it. But I'll Fight <laughs> Hell to Hold You is the jump is the standout that jumps out for me on that. And then from there, we go to Hot in the Shade. Yep. That's easy. That's Hide Your Heart, which covered by four people and not a hit for any of them. <laughs> that's
1: really I had cool. Holly
3: Knight, who co-wrote that song with Desmond and Paul on my radio show a couple months ago. And she surprisingly told me that Ace's version is her favorite version of the song. She thought she wow. thought that she that. thought that Ace and his vocal and his, the like the streetness of his vocal sort of really captured the essence of what that song was about. She said Ace this is her favorite version of the four. So um hot the shade a record that I think would as I said in I think in Greg's book, cut three or four songs, remix it. I know for a fact because I was really close to Eric when they were making that record, and I was in LA with him, and we would go to shows and he'd be like he was very disgruntled with that record outside of the fact that he had Little Caesar on it, but he was super disgruntled at the drum sound that they use drum machines, that they use some of his demo drums on a small kit. Oh,
1: he was yeah. really
3: unhappy with the sound of that record. And I agree with him. It was not sonically. It was not where it should be. So, um, but, but hide your heart is just a f- fantastic song. And then we go to revenge. Revenge. I don't know. I like off the top of like, <sighs> I always remember liking "Tough Love" a lot. I always thought that was a <laughs>
1: that's a good that's a good obscure one. A little Bruce Co right there. Yeah,
3: no, I always thought that that was a you know a, a really really um, cool song, and I just I, I liked "I Just Wanna" as well a, a lot. Yeah. So, but I remember "Tough Love," uh, thinking that was just a, there was just a really cool sort of darkness about that song at moments that I liked. So, I would I guess I'll go there. And then um,
1: Carnival Souls.
3: I like stuff on Carnival. the The thing that jumps out to me would be Rain. I mean, I loved I loved Rain. I I thought again Paul's voice, man. I mean, when 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 Paul was on and in, in, in the eighties, I mean, he really wanted to showcase that voice, and sometimes to his detriment because it would destroy him live or he couldn't come close to it live. Ron Nevison told me on my show that he pleaded with Paul to sing a little lower. On crazy nights, but he continually wanted to go higher and he felt he sang way outside his range. But again, it was what was happening at the time. Let me show you what I can do. And it was, you know, it sometimes worked, it sometimes it didn't. But I would definitely, I would go Rain from Carnival.
1: I mean, it was Paul's vocal peak at that point as a singer as well—the power that he had and the range. And um, and we'll talk about that a little bit after you go. But I know you got to go, Eddie. What's your what's your final statement on ki- '80s Kiss? Well,
3: I, I think again, it's all relative to your age and your demographic. I, I, uh, my gateway to Kiss and the, the golden era of Kiss to me will always, when I think of it, will always be the gatefold of Kiss Alive Two, and that, right. you know, that's that's there's nothing bigger or more impactful than that ever. But for me, uh, in the early '80s, young kid just starting out, trying to figure out the music business and get into it and Kiss was with me every step of the way. I was a I was a defiant supporter and fighter and I'll tell you man, I mean there there were some rough times uh, for them in in the 80s. And I don't think that's I don't think that's the one part people don't get is how tough it was at times. And it's probably why I got to get pretty close to those guys at one point because they did not have a lot of champions that would really stand behind them for and play their records and really be into the songs and what have you. So it's a very memorable time for me. It's a great memory. And the one thing that I'll say, I give immense credit, especially to Paul Stanley for, because the the eighties was his, his thing. And uh, he persevered. It, It wasn't easy and he stuck it out and he, whether look some of the stuff wasn't the most original and some of it in retrospect is probably cringeworthy and some of the songs and some of the stuff on the records, not so great, but it's all, it it was everything that it took to keep that ship alive. His partner had gotten into a lot of other things and uh, you know, all credit to Paul Stanley, because if he didn't hang in there, like he did, uh, we might not be talking about the last 20 years of kiss. So I think that that's a a big thing as well. But there's some great music there. And the last thing I'll say is I kind of wish that they would play a little bit more. I think, you know, there are songs in that catalog that uh, certainly are a a lot better known than some of the 70s deep tracks they play in the set every night. Sure. But they just, for whatever reason, outside of one or two, they really don't deal in it. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really know what the thought process is behind that, but as this If you are to believe this is the final victory lap celebration for KISS, then it would be really nice if they could find a way to address some of that stuff before they wrapped it up.
1: Yeah, I think a lot is just because of Paul's vocals, like you said. But, uh, Eddie, always great talking to you. And I know you got to do your own show, Greg, and I'll wrap it up here. But uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully get a chance to bust your balls in person soon.
3: Yep, same same here, Greg. And uh, uh, Chris, (laughs) thanks. Thanks for having me. And Greg, great book. Thanks for including me. I really enjoyed it. Good luck with it. Thank you, Eddie. I appreciate it. And we'll do something on we'll do something on my show, Jericho. You want to come on my show? We'll do this all over again on the radio.
1: Yeah, let's do it. Just just let me know. I promise I'll be uh, on time next time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thank guys. You, I'm gonna run. Thanks, Bye. Eddie. Thanks, Thank buddy. You. Do you want a beautiful lawn?
1: So, uh, yeah, just to finish what Eddie's thought is, we'll just continue on and wrap it up ourselves. I think it, Paul's range uh, it was so high, and when you talk about some of those songs, and we'll get into it. Especially Eddie mentioned "My Way." There's a uh, uh, you guys can go on YouTube and find it. Just type in "My Way" vocals only, just the vocal track, and it's so high. And I talked to Paul about that, and he said it was basically effortless for him at that point in time. It's just where he was as a singer. That's why they can't do a lot of those songs because. He's almost 70 now. The range isn't there, and that's just being a human being. But I think that's a lot of the reason why they have to be very judicious over the songs they pick from the 80s, specifically because it was such a heavy Paul time, and those melody ranges were so freaking high.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's something definitely about the 80s with Kiss is, uh, I think that Paul was at his best singing-wise as far as what he could sing. So I think that was something that was a uh, a definite plus for the 80s. Something else that I learned by also doing this book is... uh, that KISS in the 80s actually finally broke through throughout England because in the 70s, they were never as big in England as they were in the U.S. When they were oh, having interesting. Yeah, when they were having big hits with Alive and Destroyer and all those albums, they, they weren't very big chart sellers over in uh, England, whereas Look It Up and also some of the other albums came close to the top 10 or actually were top 10. And the Crazy Nights album, just to give you a comparison, Crazy Nights, the album peaked. Here in the States at 18. um, In England, it peaked at four. And also the title, the song Crazy Crazy Nights also peaked at four, whereas here in the US, it didn't even make the uh, top 40. So that's also something else about the. uh, Not
1: makeup error that I found. Well, yeah, and when they and when they did the um, uh, end of the road tour in the states, last leg, they were closing with "Do You Love Me." Then they went to Europe and closed. I'm going to say closing. They did the last the, the last three songs of the encore. They added "Crazy Nights" again and then they brought it back to the States, which for me, it's like, thank goodness, uh, because look, like I said, those non-makeup songs are few and far between. I know there's a lot of hardcore 70s guys that didn't like the fact they put Crazy Nights back in the set, but I'm like, there's a lot of 80s guys that would rather hear Crazy Nights than Do You Love Me any day of the week. So um, it's cool that they acknowledge that. But let's go back to what we were talking about with Asylum. What's your favorite song on the record, and what do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I'd probably have to go with uh, probably Tears Are Falling, which is the a big hit, but I think that's uh, the best track. I also like uh, King, King of the Mountain is good. And um, also, uh, Any Way You Slice It is probably my favorite Gene track, even though the uh, drum breakdown with the, uh, I think it's fake drums they use. That's like a very dated thing, but I would probably go with those three tracks is my favorite.
1: They're actually called Simmons drums, to be believed yeah. or not, yeah. those electronic drums, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then with uh, Crazy... And that was the crazy night. You want me to go with? Well, I'll, let me jump in with 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 the, with Asylum. And my my thoughts on it. First off, when that record came out, I hated the cover so much that I didn't ever really give it its due. So, like what Eddie said, when I listened to it in its entirety, there really is uh, all the songs are good, including Jeans. And um, I think Secretly Cruel is a great song. They might have even been able to put that out as a single. But the problem was that Paul's songs that he wrote with Desmond Child were so strong. Who Wants to be Lonely is great. Uh, all Night is great. Tears of Falling is great. And I never even realized that Who Wants to be Lonely was never even a single to the radio. It was just an MTV video, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that what really kissed, kept, kept Kiss Alive in the 80s was that involvement uh, with MTV. So... Um, so continue on with crazy
2: people forget people forget what I also talk about in the book is, uh, there was a thing at the time called dial MTV, which was, I think from, I think from either four to five or five to six at night where, uh, viewers would call in in the afternoon and whoever got the most votes would, there would be the top 10 videos. And over the course of several months, it seemed like the uh, tears are falling video would always come in at number two. And it was always held out of the top spot by Motley Crue home, sweet home. But that was a huge. That, that that's what I think made the Kiss of album and also tour at the NB a quite a successful album and also tour is because of that promotion and that video being shown during the prime time of uh, that channel. I think was really what put that album uh, you know over the top for Kiss at that
1: point. Agreed, times a thousand. So uh, let's go to uh, Crazy Nights.
2: Crazy Nights. I'll go with no, no, no because that has a great shredding solo from Bruce uh, with that, and then. A underrated song on that is, the, again, the last track on the album is the song called Thief in the Night, which is a call ride, again, by Gene Simmons and also Mitch uh, Weitzman. And uh, that track, yeah, that never really seems to ever get mentioned or anything, but I think that's a pretty strong Gene song um, that I think probably should have gotten a little bit more um, attention over the years, but for some reason it seems to slip through the cracks. So yeah, i I, I go with those two uh, songs as my favorites.
1: You know, it's funny, the, the other song from that... Um uh what's the other song that they were actually good girl gone bad i heard rumors that they were thinking about uh, dropping that as the third single uh from that album but once again that's paul's uh kind of magnum opus where he was really trying to make that was that was the one that was supposed to be uh you know earmarked to sell five six million copies uh, produced by ron nevison they waited two years to get ron nevison it's all super keyboard track Tracks on it, but once again, Paul's songwriting, he's singing. Eddie mentioned, "I'll hell, I'll fight hell to hold you." I love that. I love my way. Just how f- high that vocal is. I, we, like I said, talked to Paul about it the other day. Like that is definitely your highest vocal performance, no doubt about it. um And from a little bit of a of a obscure standpoint, I mean, not obscure it was it was a it was a video, but "Turn on the Night" should have been a huge hit, <clears throat> but. Once again, asking Paul about that, he said that radio programmers did not want to play Kiss in the eighties. They had no interest in it because they still saw them as uh, old men dinosaurs at the ripe age of thirty-five years old or whatever they right. were at the time. But I mean, Turn on the Night is such a great tune. It's got that Bon Jovi hooky chorus written all over it. So uh, I got to go with that one as well.
2: Yeah, because yeah, because something else I just wanted to say. You put, you brought up a, a a very good point, which is. Kiss had a lot of MTV hits uh, in the 80s, but for some reason they did not translate over to the charts. And it's, right. always, been, it's always been very, very, I can never, never figure it out because bands like Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and Rat had MTV hits that also translated over to the charts. Actually, Poison too. the, the, the band Poison yeah. is, a, is a very good example of this. They have big MTV hits that would also translate over into uh, top 10 hits. But for some reason, I don't know why that didn't happen with KISS. I don't know if that was a record label thing or, you know, what what exactly. Well, was. like I said,
1: apparently a lot of it was the programmers just saw them, you know, old as as an older band. But, um, you know, and, and once again, too, that's one cool thing about the KISS crews uh, is that now that Bruce Kulik has the band with with the guys from Slash's band, including Todd Kearns on vocals, who is an amazing singer you get a chance to hear all those songs. They they do turn on the night and they play, you know, uh, the, the when the walls come down and all yeah. those type of tunes. Yeah. So um, if you guys want to hear them and see what they sound like live, you can go check that out on YouTube. So uh, hot in the shade, like Eddie said, I think if you could take five songs off that record and make it a 10 song album, it would be so much better. Um, but having said that, Obviously, Hide Your Heart is great, Forever is great, but I think I love uh, King of Hearts and Silver Spoons are kind of the two gems from that record that people don't know about. What do you think?
2: I would have to say with that album, uh, I totally agree with Eddie that it was too long of an album they could have totally cut off several songs from that. But you know, the thing that I like so much about 70s Kiffs was that while Gene and Paul wrote the majority of things, they would also make it a point to have Ace sing, sing some songs and also Peter sing some songs. And that was what, that's one of my major gripes with the whole 80s thing is it primarily became the Paul and also Gene Show, whereas they sang everything. So on that Hot in the Shade album, one of my favorite songs is Little Caesar, which is sung by Eric Carr, because Eric Carr really did write a lot of, he he co-wrote a lot of great songs in Kiss. And it, it was always a shame that they never gave him, I think, more of a shot with writing more songs or also singing more songs. So I think he was uh, very, very talented. So I, I will go with Little Caesar as my favorite.
1: And it's cool, like Eddie said, the fact he finally got a lead vocal on record, even though they always gave him his spotlight live. So uh, yeah, good, good for Eric. And, and also too, I got to give an honorable mention to X and Sex from Smashes, Thrashes and Hits. That's one of my top 10 favorite 80s Kiss songs. It's so over the top. It's so ridiculous, so pompous, but perfect for who and what Paul Stanley was at that time with an amazing hook by uh, Desmond Child.
2: Yes, I agree. And also I forgot to mention the song Forever has one of Bruce's best uh, guitar solos ever as well.
1: Asking Bruce about that on, on this show, he played an electric soul and Paul said, No, I want something more Led Zeppelin-like on Battle of Evermore or something. So he came up with that and uh he and Paul worked that out together, which is cool. Uh then we moved to to, to Revenge. You know, that's that's my favorite KISS studio record every song is great and I would go with, I mean, Unholy, when I saw that song, I remember much music was RMTV in Canada. We had the power. It's the new Kiss song and at first being a little disappointed that it was a Gene vocal because I was such a Paul guy mm-hmm. but then seeing the song and just going holy shit, this is so f- great. Uh, right. That kicked it off for me. Uh, I'll give Heart of Chrome and uh, Thou Shall Not, uh, Runners Up on that one.
2: I will, I will go with the song unholy, because again, that was, you know, it was good to hear, uh, you know, Gene coming back into form again and also uh, delivering a great vocal. And then I'm going to have to take the easy way out and go with car jam 1981, because I'm such a huge fan of the late, great Eric Carr.
1: Oh, that's cool. (laughs) And then of course the much beleaguered, it was just the 22nd anniversary of uh, carnival of souls. And it's funny. uh, I, I said, asked Paul about this one. He said, this is moody and grumpy. And that is Grumpy Kiss. It's like Grumpy Cat, Grumpy Kiss. Yes. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> this album, I, I had this album probably, I think, in the summer of 95 is when it started getting leaked. So it was a good 18 months before they, they finally got it out there. But I had this a bootleg of it a year and a half before.
2: Yeah, for that for that album, if I had to pick one favorite song off of Carnival of Souls, I would have to go with Them Bones by Allison Chains. <laughs> 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 you know, that uh, that album I have to admit, I, I find it very, very hard to even really uh, listen to it because it sounds like such a uh, Allison Chains ripoff. off. They got Toby Rice, who is the uh, Allison Chains producer. Uh the song Rain, although I, I admit that, you know, it's a uh, you know, pretty good song, but it, Alice in Chains has a song called uh, "When I uh, Rain 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 When I Die," and in the song that Paul sings called "Rain," he even takes a line. I think it's gonna rain, and that's the same line that also Lane Staley sings in the Alice in Chains song. So I just had a very very hard time looking past that, and yeah, I, mm-hmm. I mean for me, the the only song I guess that, that I could really say that I wouldn't mind hearing is the song that Bruce sings, because again. I always found it interesting when we would hear, you know, different members of Kiss singing different songs. So from three personally, I would probably have to go with the last song called I Walk Alone, which is sung by uh, Bruce.
1: I got to go with Hate because it's kind of like Dom or uh, Unholy Part 2. I think the the drumming on that is nuts if you go back and listen to it. And then the most Kiss song for me, you know, classic Kiss is Master and Slave. Uh, even though it's detuned and it's kind of a little bit really moody. It's got some great Paul Stanley singing on it. But um, yeah, once again, I mean, Grumpy Kiss, the, the fact it was released after the makeup uh, and the reunion had started, it was a real afterthought, which is a shame because in a lot of ways it is Bruce Kulik's tour de force. I think he's got eight or nine co-writes on it, but good way for him to kind of exit the band uh, with, a, with a lot of uh, involvement on the Carnival of Souls record.
2: Right. And, and, you know, something else is the uh, song Jungle, which was the only song released as a single. Yeah. Although, yeah, you know, one thing that I actually did like about that song is the chorus. The, the chorus actually does sound like a quote-unquote KISS chorus, so that at least I could hear the KISS like kind of new coming back. But but then the rest of the song is, again, it's kind of like murky Alice Shane type stuff, so I... You know, I did kind of like the chorus in that, but I can't really say for the rest of the song. I but once
1: again, it was it was a radio hit to a certain extent, wasn't it? Didn't it go top twenty or top ten?
2: Yes, yes, it uh, actually was a, a pretty big uh, radio hit when it came out when the album finally came out in 1997.
1: So once again, Kiss did get some radio play as uh, as their non makeup career wound down. So, um, Greg, like I said, once again, it's a great book, a lot of great quotes, a lot of great people involved um what's your kind of last statement on kiss in the 80s and I'll, and I'll start i think like eddie said if it wasn't for paul stanley kind of running that ship in the 80s kiss might not be here today uh they never broke up they're much like the stones they never broke up the two main guys even though they might hate each other never stopped playing together uh, they still had that partnership and they did not stop playing arenas. And you could say it was a little bit down and they only went gold and they only went platinum. There was probably, you know, you're judging that against Kiss's past uh, uh, in the 70s, but they never stopped. They had 10 years of still playing arenas and doing gold and platinum records. So when you think back to it, it was just another uh, another point of the band's career that was very successful, uh, not compared to their 70s stuff, but compared to most other bands of that era, they were right up there with them. So um, I, I think it's a very vital part of history, and once again, it is my favorite part of history. Greg?
2: Yeah, you know, one thing also, you can uh, love or hate 80s KISS, but one thing uh, that you can't deny is it, def- it definitely did get KISS back on track without those albums without, uh, the, you know, the, while those albums weren't maybe as strong sellers as, again, Alive and Destroyer, those albums did keep KISS you know, current. It did keep them on the charts. It kept them also being played on MTV. So it definitely kept them in the mix with bands like Motley Crue and Bon Jovi and Poison. So for that, they definitely kept KISS relevant. So, you know, without those 80s uh, non-makeup uh, albums, who knows if KISS, have some makeup on they may have had to break up at some point so yeah I, I think that the non-makeup era is a hugely important uh part of kiss story that's why i wrote this book called take it off kiss truly unmasked
1: what's your favorite non-makeup kiss record
2: i have to go with uh, look it up because because uh, to me that sounds closest to creatures to me is in the top five kiss albums uh for me and Uh, It does not have the great drum sound of Creatures, but Look It Up is a continuation kind of of Creatures. I could see it being a little bit similar, so I'll have to go with that album as my favorite non-makeup ever. Kiss album.
1: I'm going Revenge with the runner-up of uh, Kiss Asylum. All right, Greg. Well, thank you so much, man, and we look forward to. Uh, if you haven't checked out the book, uh, you check it out. If you're a Kiss fan, it's amazing and uh, an unbelievable forward from a very, very wise, wise man. Uh, like <laughs> me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: exactly. Yes, you know, I uh, I actually wanted to thank you for also doing that. It was a great forward. I definitely appreciate that, Chris.
1: I actually said that to Paul after I wrote it. He's like, "Oh, that's really good. Thank <laughs> you very much." So. cool man well thank you so much and uh and uh i look forward to talking to you again soon on trunk show
2: great thanks chris i appreciate it
1: all right, Greg Pareto's book, Take It Off, Kiss Truly Unmasked, is available now wherever books are sold. Eddie Trunk contributed a lot. I wrote the foreword. A great look at Kiss in the 80s uh, and covers all 12 albums they released during the non-makeup year. So put it on your Christmas list. Give it as a gift to the music fan in your life or just treat yourself. If you love Kiss as much as I do, you know 80s Kiss is my jam. Like I said, get your copy today. All right, coming up on Friday, Lance Storm returns to talk about the closing of the Storm Wrestling Academy and the big change coming to his life. He shares stories about the many talented performers who came through his training doors as well as some of the big stars who visited over the years a great great story of so many years 12 13 14 15 years of the storm wrestling academy turned out some of the biggest stars in the business and lance is going to tell us how he started it why he's closing it and everything in between so we'll see you then stay hard stay hungry peace love and hugs and a big give yeah, boy and baby let put the